there, and welcome to Zero Half Hour, brought to you by Zero Hour Health and Zedic, a podcast where we talk with leaders from across the food service industry and beyond about the pressing issues of the day in 30 minutes or less. Our goal is to share ideas from diverse perspectives on a range of topics that matter to every business in the current and post-COVID eras. I'm Rosalind Stone, CEO of Zero Hour Health. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Ramsey. Dr. Ramsey is the Chief of Medical Services for the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Support. She's an internal medicine physician who's been treating substance use disorder since 2004. Welcome, Dr. Ramsey. Thank you so much for having me. So we're getting a lot of questions about naloxone. Are there best practices for employers regarding stocking and use of naloxone? It's a great question, and and I don't know that there are any formally written best practices on storing naloxone for businesses. Certainly, my clinical recommendation would be that we all have an opportunity to save a life when someone is overdosing, and given the statistics on national overdoses, an opioid overdose uh, is the most common type of fatal overdose. I do want to talk about polysubstance overdose at some point during this interview. But right now, to answer your question, I think that in order to stop the numbers that we're seeing of fatal overdoses, we know that naloxone is, is a very effective tool, even against the current Um, unregulated drug supply with highly potent synthetic opioids. Naloxone is still a very effective tool. So I personally, as a clinician, would always recommend that anybody carry naloxone on their person or else have nalox boxes that are accessible in their businesses. So again, if someone unexpectedly overdoses or just is unconscious on your your premises and you don't know why, you can at least uh, do a a quick action by giving naloxone before activating EMS. Regarding storage, it's um, best practice if naloxone is stored sort of room temperature to temperature neutral. So it's not that it will become ineffective if it's exposed to freezing or heating temperatures, but if it is exposed repeatedly to elevated or low temperatures, we don't know how that affects the efficacy. For example, after how many times that it has been in freezing or or, uh, heated temperatures, will that affect the efficacy of naloxone? We're not really sure. So probably better to have storage at room temperature. And again, not in a lockbox, not behind a locked door, but in a lockbox that would be publicly available. I hadn't heard that term, box. A nalox box is unlocked. Remember that naloxone will be over the counter. Uh, one specific brand of naloxone, Narcan, will be over the counter in the next couple months. And so again, should not be locked up, should not be inaccessible. This is something that should be available to anybody who needs to use it. Um, you know, one of the questions that comes up is you know, storing it in vehicles. So what you're describing to me um, is not best. It would not be best practice, practice to store in your glove box or in a vehicle. Correct. It would not because again, very depending on where you live, variable temperatures throughout the year. So if we're talking specifically about uh, somewhere in the mid Atlantic region, you're going to have low temperatures. You're going to have high temperatures. So that would be um, not best practice for storing naloxone. You also want to be aware of the expiration date, uh, because if you use one of your two naloxone in your standard kit that has that has two 
um, doses of naloxone in it, you want to replace that. And the other thing just about expiration date is that while we can't as an agency or can I as a physician say it's fine to use it after its expiration date, I can't do that. What I can tell you is that we do have data that does show that it is efficacious long after its expiration date. Uh, and there is one study that even showed it was efficacious after 30 years after its expiration date. So my best advice is be aware of your expiration date. Always try to have a dose of naloxone or two doses of naloxone on your person that are not expired. But if the only naloxone that you have access to is an expired dose, you want to go ahead and use it. It's not going to hurt somebody. At worst, it won't be effective. So the Surgeon General first recommended employers included in their first aid kits back in 2018, but fewer employers are doing this as of now. Where do you think we're going with this? So I think there's a couple of different ways to look at that and a couple of different ways to answer it. Number one, I think, is stigma. Until we really address stigma towards people who use drugs, towards persons with substance use disorder, towards the substances themselves, that we're not going to really move that needle. So if we were thinking about um, an, an efficacious intervention for a person with diabetes that would reverse a situation and has an, as an effectiveness rate um, that's astounding for a medication, there would be no problem with implementing that in intervention widely. But when we're talking about people who use drugs and people with substance use disorder, again, stigma plays a huge role in how people respond to best practices. So I think that's the number one problem. The number two problem is I think that there's not enough information uh, out there that, that sort of demystifies naloxone, how it works and how it doesn't work. So naloxone is going to only be effective and work if someone has opioids on board in their body. If they do not have opioids on board in their body, naloxone isn't going to do anything. It's essentially an inert substance when they're not opioids on board. So it does not have any interactions with any medi other medications other, again, than opioids or opioids from unregulated drug supply. It does not have any interactions with any medications. It does not have any interactions with any over-the-counter medications. It does not have any actions, interactions with any other substances that someone might be using. And it is not contraindicated in any medical condition or psychiatric condition. So if you give somebody naloxone who is not in an overdose situation, it's not gonna do anything. So you can't hurt somebody by giving them naloxone. Um, and I think, again, people are worried about liability. So they're worried about why well, get in trouble if they weren't in an overdose and I gave them naloxone, or if I gave them naloxone in an overdose situation, but they didn't survive. And again, there are laws in New York state that um, protect the person who activates EMS, again, uh, by the Good Samaritan law, and there's protections for an individual who administers naloxone from liability. That's good to know. And I think those Good Samaritan laws with regard um, um, to naloxone apply in almost all 50 states, if not all 50 states. Um, and yeah, so it, is, it is by state, and so there is variability among states.
Sure. I do know now that all 50 states, there's no federal standing order for administration, but there are standing order, state orders in all 50 states now. So we're, we're reading so much about Trank in the news. Can you talk about what you just talked about and how it applies to that? So Trank is a street name for xylazine. So xylazine, uh, which is very much in the media right now, and again, described in what I would say are very inflammatory terms, which are not helpful because inflammatory terms like zombie flesh eating drug create stigma towards the individuals who are using xylazine. And people may have fears about responding to an individual using, and, and I mean, it could be xylazine, it could be fentanyl, because again, they're, they're afraid, they believe fentanyl myths that are perpetuated in the media, that they're gonna have an overdose via, via inhalational exposure to fentanyl or dermal, so touching fentanyl, which none of those things are true. And that may make people not wanna respond to an overdose. So xylazine is um, a veterinary medication. So it's approved by the FDA in the United States for use in veterinary medicine. It's currently in the media because uh, it is more on the radar because it has been uh, present in many of the fentanyl-related overdoses. And so we think it's being added to, quote, give fentanyl legs, unquote. So what do I mean by that? It, ex it extends the duration of the effect of fentanyl. So when, we, when you look at qualitative interviews of people who are using fentanyl, they are not seeking out xylazine, the vast majority of individuals, um, because again, there are some side effects associated with xylazine. It um, causes you to be unconscious for most individuals for many hours. So it could be average four hours, but it could be upwards of eight to 10 hours. So obviously if someone is unconscious for that period of time, it puts them at a significant vulnerability for all kinds of situations, physical assault, sexual assault, robbery, but also medical complications. So we don't know the prevalence. New York City, by doing the drug checking, is getting a sense of uh, what the amount is of xylazine in the drug supply in New York City. And now in New York City, the medical examiner is testing for xylazine on all overdose cases. So we know in 2021, xylazine was present in 19% of the fatal opioid overdoses. In wow, that's a big number. I want to pivot for a second. We know that sometimes people who are revived are combative. And this certainly gives pause to um, Good Samaritans, gives support pause to, to businesses and employers. Can you explain why that happens and what people can do to be prepared? Yes, and I also want to demystify like what combative means. Um, so when we think about it, if someone goes into an overdose and they're revived, often it's not one person that's there when they're revived. It's often multiple people, including the police and EMS and bystanders, and everybody is standing over them and staring at them. That person does not know that they've overdosed. And so when they wake up, it's probably extremely disconcerting that everyone is standing around them like that and it's probably scary but also you've precipitated opioid withdrawal 
when you give a person who is physiologically dependent on opioids naloxone to reverse the effects of their opioids. So opioid withdrawal syndrome is not pleasant. It's very uncomfortable. So a way to counter that is one, not to crowd around a person who is in an overdose situation, but really to step back and give Great that person advice. space, let them come to, and then explain to them what happened and uh, see, see how they're feeling and what they need from you at that point. The other thing is when we give too much naloxone, multiple doses repeatedly, we don't wait the two minutes between doses to see if that individual is responding to that dose we just gave. Um, people, the more naloxone you give, the more withdrawal someone is going to experience. So we want to give the least amount of naloxone that's effective. Let me ask so a question right more, here. What does responding look like? Uh, are you talking about when we give naloxone? When you give, what, when you give a first dose, what is a response? What does a successful response look like? What would make you de determine? Yes, I should give the second dose. Two oh, that, okay, that's a great question. So a successful response is that breathing normalizes. The goal should not be awake, up, and talking. That is not that is not the goal because you've overshot if you give that much. What we want to see is that breathing goes, that a person goes from being blue or with blue lips and blue fingernails or looks gray, from slowed or gurgling breathing or no breathing to a more normal rate of breathing. So from a number perspective, I mean, that would be over eight breaths per minute. So again, I don't expect lay health people to, or lay, lay persons, not lay health people, lay persons to actually be counting someone's breath, but you're looking for the breathing to be normalizing. Makes sense, makes a lot of sense. Um, and then again, wait two minutes. I did, wanna, I did wanna circle back to one point from my own training, which is when is the right time to call 911? I believe it's before you give the first dose. Is that correct? So I think um, I personally think you should give the first dose of naloxone before you call 911. Ideally, you do that simultaneously. But I, I personally think every moment counts. And so the quicker you get that naloxone into someone, you start the clock on that two minutes, the quicker it is that you could have a potential effect on the course of that overdose. Makes sense. Um, one final question, and it's a, you know, it's a complicated one. Given many, many of our clients are in the restaurant and food service industry, um, given the higher percentage of drug users in the restaurant and food service industries, what can employers do to support the health of their employees with sub substance use disorders? That's a really great question. So I think there are many things that, uh, that people can do. Um, one is you want to be able to have sort of an open door policy and that people who um, use substances aren't punished for their substance use or stigmatized for their substance use. So if you know that a person has a substance use disorder, um, how can you support them? How can you make them feel safe at work? How can you um, make them feel safe in, uh, in their employment and that 
that you're you're you understand they have a health condition. It's a medical condition, just like someone who has diabetes or someone who has hypertension. So letting them know that they're not going to be discriminated against because they have a substance use disorder, I think is really important. Again, we would not discriminate against the rest of our employees for having other health conditions. So we shouldn't be discriminating against individuals with substance use disorder. Um, I would make sure that again, when we're, when we're talking about, uh, substance use with our employees that we have harm reduction practices in place. So a perfect example is have an naloxone training for the whole staff and incorporate the messages that I'm talking about with respect to polysubstance overdose. So we don't want to have one tool in our toolbox when it comes to responding to a crisis situation which may or may not be an opioid overdose. Maybe it's an overdose due to benzodiazepines. If your only tool in your toolbox is naloxone, you're going to be giving naloxone to somebody who's not going to respond to it. So we have to be able to pivot and support breathing. Or if someone is using stimulants, they may have an overamping situation. Maybe they come to work because it's a very fast-paced environment and they use stimulants before they came to work, but they go into an overamping situation, which means they're having either physical or mental health symptoms acutely associated with intoxication due to stimulants. So what do you do in that situation? You find them a calm, calm place and um, make sure that they are well hydrated with something that has electrolytes in it, like Gatorade. So how do you respond? Do you, you remove them from the line if they're in the cooking line and try to bring them to a quiet, dark place? Someone can stay with them, talk to them softly and quietly, make sure that they have fluids. If they are complaining of cardiac symptoms associated with that stimulant use, that's a bit of a different response because, again, there are cardiac events associated with stimulant use. You would want to involve 911 and make sure that they were evaluated appropriately at a medical facility. But I think we have ways to support our staff who are using substances that aren't punitive. There are ways that we can support them in the context of our work environment, and that's going to make a healthier environment for anybody who comes into the building that may have an overdose or other crisis related to substance use while they're in your facility. Sure. And I do want to make sort of one important related point. Um, I don't know if you watch The Bear. Um, many of our, many of our, that many of our clients do and many of our, our own employees do. And there's a difference between substance use or illegal substance use inside the workplace versus outside the workplace. And there is a scene in the, in the current season of The Bear where there's substance, substance use um, in the workplace. And that's a bit of a different, a different scenario. And that's certainly when you need HR and, and, yeah. and legal involved. And, Agreed. And, and, and that's not and my that's wheelhouse. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But, but it, it's I'm a medical it, person. <laughs> it's a gray, you know, it's a gray area um, because yeah. you're dealing with the same issues or the same, the same symptoms that you just described. Um, Correct. But then there, then there are other issues. And unfortunately, some of it does need to be punitive when someone brings an illegal substance into the workplace. Um, ha there, there's no way not to have some punitive um, measures related to that. But we are still people who care for people, um, you know, and need to, you know, need to make sure that we stay focused on, on that first. Um, any closing thoughts, any closing advice about best practices for employers? 
So I think we all have a role to play in the current overdose epidemic. I mean, these are our, our friends. These are our family members. These are our neighbors who are dying. So I don't think we any of us have a, a place to say it doesn't involve me because it involves all of us. I and mean, we know over 109 from the preliminary CDC data from 2022, we know that over 109,000 people died of an, an overdose uh, last year. So those all of us know somebody who has a substance use disorder uh, in our lives, whether it's tobacco use, alcohol <laughs> use fentanyl use or any other substance use, we all have known somebody. And I think empathy and kindness are how we should respond to individuals who may be having a difficult time with their substance use um, rather than stigma. So everybody has a role to play in reversing the trend of the epidemic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Truly appreciate it. I hope it, hope it was helpful. show for today. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Stay tuned for our next episode in your inboxes and on your podcast app of choice soon. As always, if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover or have a guest we should chat with, don't hesitate to reach out to us at support at zerohourhealth.com. To learn more about us and subscribe to our twice-weekly executive summary, check out zerohourhealth.com. Thanks again.